Part Two, Chapter Seven of Madame Bovary. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gloria Zablicki. Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert, translated by Eleanor Marks Avalon. Part Two, Chapter Seven. The next day was a dreary one for Emma. Everything seemed to her enveloped in a black atmosphere, floating confusedly over the exterior of things, and sorrow was engulfed within her soul with soft shrieks such as the winter wind makes in ruined castles. It was that reverie which we give to things that will not return, the lassitude that seizes you after everything was done, that pain in fine, that the interruption of every wanted movement. The sudden cessation of any prolonged vibration brings on. As on the return from Vaubyessard, when the quadrilles were running in her head, she was full of a gloomy melancholy, of a numb despair. Léon reappeared, taller, handsomer, more charming, more vague. Though separated from her, he had not left her. He was there, and the walls of the house seemed to hold his shadow. She could not detach her eyes from the carpet where he had walked, from those empty chairs where he had sat. The river still flowed on and slowly drove its ripples along the slippery banks. They had often walked there to the murmur of the waves over the moss-covered pebbles. How bright the sun had been! What happy afternoons they had seen alone in the shade at the end of the garden! He read aloud, bareheaded, sitting on a footstool of dry sticks. The fresh wind of the meadow set trembling the leaves of the book. And the nasturtiums of the arbor. Ah, he was gone, the only charm of her life, the only possible hope of joy. Why had she not seized this happiness when it came to her? Why not have kept hold of it with both hands, with both knees, when it was about to flee from her? And she cursed herself for not having loved Leon. She thirsted for his lips. The wish took possession of her to run after and rejoin him, throw herself into his arms, and say to him, "It is I, I am yours." But Emma recoiled beforehand at the difficulties of the enterprise, and her desires, increased by regret, became only the more acute. Henceforth, the memory of Leon was the centre of her boredom; it burnt there more brightly than the fire travellers have left on the snow of a Russian steppe. She sprang towards him. She pressed against him. She stirred carefully the dying embers, sought all around her, anything that could revive it. And the most distant reminiscences, like the most immediate occasions, what she experienced as well as what she imagined, her voluptuous desires that were unsatisfied, her projects of happiness that crackled in the wind like dead boughs, her sterile virtue, her lost hopes, the domestic tête-à-tête, she gathered it all up. Took everything, and made it all serve as fuel for her melancholy. The flames, however, subsided, either because the supply had exhausted itself, or because it had been piled up too much. Love, little by little, was quelled by absence. Regret stifled beneath habit, and this incendiary light that had empurpled her pale sky was overspread and faded by degrees. In the supineness of her conscience. She even took her repugnance toward her husband for aspirations towards her lover, the burning of hate for the warmth of tenderness. But as the tempest still raged, 
and his passion burnt itself down to the very cinders, and no help came, no sun rose, there was night on all sides, and she was lost in that terrible cold that pierced her. Then the evil days of Tostes began again. She thought herself now far more unhappy, for she had the experience of grief, with the certainty that it would not end. A woman who had laid on herself such sacrifices could well allow herself certain whims. She bought a Gothic prie-dieu, and in a month spent fourteen francs on lemons for polishing her nails. She wrote to Rouen for a blue cashmere gown. She chose one of Leroux's finest scarves, and wore it knotted around her waist over her dressing-gown. And with closed blinds and a book in her hand, she lay stretched out on a couch in this garb. She often changed her coiffure. She did her hair a la chinois, in flowing curls, in plaited coils. She parted it on one side and rolled it under like a man's. She wanted to learn Italian. She bought dictionaries, a grammar, and a supply of white paper. She tried serious reading, history, and philosophy. Sometimes in the night, Charles woke up with a start, thinking he was being called to a patient. "'I'm coming,' he stammered, and it was the noise of a match Emma had struck to relight the lamp. But her reading fared like her piece of embroidery, all of which, only just begun, filled her cupboard. She took it up, left it, passed on to other books. She had attacks in which she could easily have been driven to commit any folly. She maintained one day, in opposition to her husband, that she could drink off a large glass of brandy, and as Charles was stupid enough to dare her, she swallowed the brandy to the last drop. In spite of her vaporous airs, as the housewives of Yonville called them, Emma, all the same, never seemed gay, and usually she had at the corners of her mouth that immobile contraction that puckers the faces of old maids and those of men whose ambitions have failed. She was pale all over, white as a sheet, the skin of her nose was drawn at the nostrils, her eyes looked at you vaguely. After discovering three gray hairs on her temples, she talked much of her old age. She often fainted. One day she even spat blood, and as Charles fussed around her, showing his anxiety, Bah! she answered. What does it matter? Charles fled to his study and wept there, both his elbows on the table, sitting in an armchair at his bureau, under the phrenological head. Then he wrote to his mother, begging her to come, and they had many long consultations together on the subject of Emma. What should they decide? What was to be done, since she rejected all medical treatment? "'Do you know what your wife wants?' replied Madame Bovary, senior. "'She wants to be forced to occupy herself with some manual work. "'If she were obliged, like so many others, to earn her living, "'she wouldn't have these vapors that come to her "'from a lot of ideas she stuffs into her head "'and from the idleness in which she lives. "'Yet she is always busy,' said Charles. "'Ah, always busy at what? "'Reading novels, bad books, works against religion.' and in which they mock at priests and speeches taken from Voltaire. But all that leads you far astray, my poor child. Anyone who has no religion always ends by turning out badly. So it was decided to stop Emma reading novels. The enterprise did not seem easy. The good lady undertook it. She was, when she passed through Rouen, to go herself to the lending library and represent that Emma had discontinued her subscription. Would they not have a right to apply to the police if the librarian persisted all the same in his poisonous trade? The farewells of mother and daughter-in-law were cold. 
During the three weeks that they had been together, they had not exchanged half a dozen words, apart from the inquiries and phrases when they met at table, and in the evening before going to bed. Madame Bovary left on a Wednesday, the market day at Yonville. The place since morning had been blocked by a row of carts, which, on end and their shafts in the air, spread all along the line of houses from the church to the inn. On the other side there were canvas booths, where cotton checks, blankets, and woolen stockings were sold, together with harness for horses and packets of blue ribbon, whose ends fluttered in the wind. The coarse hardware was spread out on the ground between pyramids of eggs and hampers of cheeses, from which sticky straw stuck out. Near the corn machines, clucking hens passed their necks through the bars of flat cages. The people, crowding in the same place and unwilling to move thence, sometimes threatened to smash the shop front of the chemist. On Wednesdays his shop was never empty, and the people pushed in less to buy drugs than for consultations. So great was Omea's reputation in the neighboring villages. His robust aplomb had fascinated the rustics. They considered him a greater doctor than all the doctors. Emma was leaning out at the window. She was often there. The window in the provinces replaces the theater and the promenade. She was amusing herself with watching the crowd of boors when she saw a gentleman in a green velvet coat. He had on yellow gloves, although he wore heavy gautiers. He was coming toward the doctor's house, followed by a peasant walking with a bent head and quite a thoughtful air. "'Can I see the doctor?' he asked Justine who was talking on the doorsteps with Felicité, and taking him for a servant of the house, tell him that Monsieur Rodolphe Boulanger of La Huchette is here. It was not from territorial vanity that the new arrival added of La Huchette to his name, but to make himself the better known. La Huchette, in fact, was an estate near Yonville, where he had just bought the chateau and two farms that he cultivated himself, without, however, troubling very much about them. He lived as a bachelor, and was supposed to have at least 15,000 francs a year. Charles came into the room. Monsieur Boulanger introduced his man, who wanted to be bled because he felt a tingling all over. "'That'll purge me,' he urged, as an objection to all reasoning. So Bovary ordered a bandage and a basin, and asked Justine to hold it. Then addressing the peasant, who was already pale, "'Don't be afraid, my lad.' "'No, no, sir,' said the other. "'Get on.' And with an air of bravado, he held out his great arm. At the prick of the lancet, the blood spurted out, splashing against the looking-glass. "'Hold the basin nearer!' exclaimed Charles. "'Lor,' said the peasant, "'one would swear it was a little fountain flowing. "'How red my blood is! "'That's a good sign, isn't it?' "'Sometimes,' answered the doctor, "'one feels nothing at first, and then syncope sets in, "'and more especially with people of strong constitution like this man.' "'At these words the rustic let go the lancet case "'he was twisting between his fingers. "'A shudder of his shoulders made the chair back creak. "'His hat fell off. "'I thought as much,' said Bovary, pressing his finger on the vein. "'The basin was beginning to tremble in Justine's hands. "'His knees shook. He turned pale. "'Emma! Emma!' called Charles. With one bound she came down the staircase. "'Some vinegar!' he cried. "'Oh, dear, two at once!' And in his emotion he could hardly put on the compress. "'It is nothing,' said Monsieur Boulanger quietly, taking Justine in his arms. He seated him on the table, with his back resting against the wall. 
Madame Bovary began taking off his cravat. The strings of his shirt had got into a knot, and she was for some minutes moving her light fingers about the young fellow's neck. Then she poured some vinegar on her cambric handkerchief. She moistened his temples with little dabs, and then blew upon them softly. The plowman revived, but Justine's syncope still lasted, and his eyeballs disappeared in the pale sclerotics like blue flowers in milk. "'We must hide this from him,' said Charles. Madame Bovary took the basin to put it under the table. With the movement she made in bending down her dress, it was a summer dress with four flounces, yellow, long in the waist and wide in the skirt, spread out under her on the flags of the room, and as Emma, stooping, staggered a little as she stretched out her arms. The stuff here and there gave with the inflections of her bust. Then she went to fetch a bottle of water, and she was melting some pieces of sugar when the chemist arrived. The servant had been sent to fetch him in the tumult. Seeing his pupil's eyes staring, he drew a long breath. Then, going around him, he looked at him from head to foot. "'Fool,' he said. "'Really a little fool. A fool in four letters. A phlebotomy's a big affair, isn't it? And a fellow who isn't afraid of anything. A kind of squirrel, just as he is who climbs to vertiginous heights to shake down nuts. Oh, yes, you just talk to me. Boast about yourself.' Here's a fine fitness for practicing pharmacy later on, for under serious circumstances you may be called before the tribunals in order to enlighten the minds of the magistrates, and you would have to keep your head then to reason, show yourself a man, or else pass for an imbecile. Justine did not answer. The chemist went on. Who asked you to come? You're always pestering the doctor and madame. On Wednesday, moreover, your presence is indispensable to me. There are now twenty people in the shop. I left everything because of the interest I take in you. Come, get along, sharp, wait for me, and keep an eye on the jars. When Justine, who was rearranging his dress, had gone, they talked for a little while about fainting fits. Madame Bovary had never fainted. That is extraordinary for a lady, said Monsieur Boulanger. But some people are very susceptible. Thus in a duel, I have seen a second lose consciousness at the mere sound of the loading of pistols. For my part, said the chemist, the sight of other people's blood doesn't affect me at all, but the mere thought of my own flowing would make me faint if I reflected upon it too much. Monsieur Boulanger, however, dismissed his servant, advising him to calm himself, since his fancy was over. It procured me the advantage of making your acquaintance, he added, and he looked at Emma as he said this. Then he put three francs on the corner of the table, bowed negligently, and went out. He was soon on the other side of the river, this was his way back to La Huchette, and Emma saw him in the meadow, walking under the poplars, slackening his pace now and then, as one who reflects. "'She is very pretty,' he said to himself. "'She is very pretty, this doctor's wife. Fine teeth, black eyes, a dainty foot, a figure like a Parisienne's. Where the devil does she come from? Wherever did that fat fellow pick her up?' Monsieur Rodolphe Boulanger was thirty-four. He was of brutal temperament and intelligent perspicacity, having, moreover, had much to do with women, and knowing them well. This one had seemed pretty to him. So he was thinking about her and her husband. I think he is very stupid. She is tired of him, no doubt. He has dirty nails and hasn't shaved for three days. While he is trotting after his patients, she sits there botching socks, and she gets bored. 
She would like to live in town and dance polkas every evening. Poor little woman. She's gaping after love like a carp after water on a kitchen table. With three words of gallantry she'd adore one, I'm sure of it. She'd be tender, charming, yes. But how to get rid of her afterwards? Then the difficulties of love-making seen in the distance made him by contrast think of his mistress. She was an actress at Rouen, whom he kept. And when he had pondered over this image, with which, even in remembrance, he was satiated, Ah, Madame Bovary, he thought, is much prettier, especially fresher. Virginie is decidedly beginning to grow fat. She is so finicky about her pleasures, and besides, she has a mania for prawns. The fields were empty, and around him Rodolphe heard only the regular beating of the grass striking against his boots, with a cry of the grasshopper hidden at a distance among the oats. He again saw Emma in her room, dressed as he had seen her, and he undressed her. "'Oh, I will have her!' he cried, striking a blow with his stick at a clod in front of him, and he at once began to consider the political part of the enterprise. He asked himself, "'Where shall we meet? By what means?' We shall always be having the brat on our hands, and the servant, the neighbors, and husband, all sorts of worries. Sure, one would lose too much time over it. Then he resumed, She really has eyes that pierce one's heart like a gimlet, and that pale complexion. I adore pale women. When he reached the top of the Arguel Hills, he had made up his mind. It's only finding the opportunities. Well, I will call in now and then. I'll send them venison, poultry. I'll have myself bled, if need be. We shall become friends. I'll invite them to my place. By Jove, added he, there's the agricultural show coming on. She'll be there. I shall see her. We'll begin boldly, for that's the surest way. End of Part 2 Chapter 7